Welcome to the 2009 Perth Writers' Festival podcast series. Brought to you by 720 ABC Perth. This recording was taken during the 2009 Perth Writers' Festival and has been made possible by the Perth International Arts Festival. I'm Linda Briskman from Curtin University and it's a great privilege to be chairing today's session as I'm a great fan of uh, Clive Hamilton's and he's been a great inspiration for me in many ways and I use one of his previous books, um, Silencing Dissent, uh, to to give me courage in in the work that I do and I'm already referring to um, the freedom paradox in my work and and recommending it to postgraduate students to extend intellectual boundaries. I'm sure you're all here because you know Clive's work, but I'll just give a brief introduction. Clive is an Australian author and public intellectual. In June 2008, he was appointed Professor of Public Ethics at the Centre for Applied Philosophy and Public Ethics, a joint centre of the Australian National University, Charles Sturt University and the University of Melbourne. Until 2008, he was Executive Director of the Australia Institute, a progressive think tank that he founded. His doctorate at the University of Sussex was titled Capitalist Industrialisation in Korea. I got that right? Yeah. Okay. Clive is now going to talk about his book and there will be some time, plenty of time, hopefully for questions at the end. I asked Clive, I emailed him and asked what he was going to um, actually focus on and his reply was very interesting. It was sex. (laughs) Now, sex is section 38 of the book, and from my word count, brief word count, um, it seems to be much longer than other sections of the book. It's certainly longer than nature, suicide, emotions, death, and God, for example. So I'm sure Clive has a lot to talk to us about, and I'm sure you all have a lot of questions for him. Thank you, Clive. Thanks very much, uh, Linda, for that intro, and to you all for for coming along um, today. Um, As uh, Linda indicated, uh, my theme for today is rethinking sexual freedom, which is something I felt uh, compelled to do uh, as I wrote uh, this book, uh, The Freedom Paradox, because it's really uh, on on questions of sex that so many of the difficult moral issues of our uh, society come together. Well, the dominant uh, principle of uh, moral behaviour in uh, postmodern societies like ours is the so-called ethic of consent, especially in in the arena of sexual morals. It's one of the enduring influences of the social revolutions of the 60s and 70s. Now, according to the ethic of consent, when third parties are not affected, informed consent is the only ground for judging the moral value of of someone's behaviour. In these situations, in fact, there's no morality, only an agreed procedure for individuals to decide what's right for them. This uh, radical individualism is the ethical basis of both free market libertarianism and the political and social demands of the social movements of the 60s and 70s. It's now evident, I think, that the removal of um, most taboos and social prohibitions on sexual activity as a result of those revolutions in the 60s and 70s has led to a highly sexualised society 
in which erotic imagery and sex talk are to be found everywhere in private and public life. Uninhibited sexual expression has become bound up with notions of freedom to the point where, for many people, it provides the path they follow in order to express themselves or validate themselves. It seems to me that uh, this state of affairs could come about only because uh, the idea of sexual relations has been subtly uh, but essentially redefined. After contraception uh, eliminated biological reproduction as a factor that people need to, to uh, take into account, for the most part at least, in sexual decision-making, there seemed to be only one function left in mainstream society at least, and that is the pursuit of pleasure. But I think there's a lost aspect of sexual engagement that goes much deeper than its physical pleasures and indeed beyond the biology of reproduction. This third aspect of sex, hidden rather than lost, concerns the idea of union, both emotional union and what I call in the book metaphysical union, which might be thought of as the direct expression and joining of our inner selves um, our essence as humans. The evocation through sexual union of some mysterious power that holds uh, promise, uh, at least, of ecstatic merger gives sex a significance that transcends everyday experience. I think uh, this little discussed but ever-present aspect of sexual engagement uh, actually explains our society's astonishing preoccupation with sex in all of its manifestations. So it's in this context that I want to take up a reconsideration of freedom as set out in the freedom paradox and apply it to modern sexual relations. <clears throat> Let me talk first about casual sex. Casual sex, if freely consented to, is engaged in for purely physical gratification, perhaps the emotional pleasure from a brief social encounter. Sex without love, of course, is widely practised uh, in our society, particularly amongst younger adults, and few are willing to criticise it. If both parties freely agree and are over the age of consent, what possible objection could there be? Well, before attempting uh, an answer to this question, we need to think about the context, of course, in which casual sex has proliferated, since in practice casual sex is a minefield of consensual ambiguities. In the first instance, each party must be old enough, sober enough and sane enough to be able to take moral responsibility for their decision. In practice, of course, we know that youthfulness, drunkenness and emotional distress, particularly amongst uh, young women, are sometimes exploited uh, by young men for sex to sexual advantage. But it's not only girls, of course, whose emotional confusion can be exploited. The newspapers report cases of 14 or 15-year-old boys uh, who are invited or seduced by their female teachers into sexual, a sexual relationship. Uh, the typical reaction of men when they read these stories in the newspapers is to wish they'd been so lucky at school. Uh, but it's evident that uh, few of the seduced boys escape without emotional trauma, sometimes severe and long-lasting. This reminds us that despite the message pervaded by the media and popular culture uh, that um, it's no more than good fun, uh, sex is in fact complex, deep and powerful. There's also a wider set of pressures on people 
uh, especially young people, to engage in casual sex. The market is saturated with erotic imagery and content whose effect is to create and to reinforce the view that engaging in sex is a natural part of social life and that those who don't uh, engage in it are in some sense ostracised. The cool group at school, uh, at high school, acquires its elevated status primarily by engaging in, or at least giving the impression of engaging in, premature sexual activity. So sex is associated with uh, sophistication, non-conformity and a willingness to embrace life. Perhaps the most disturbing aspect of the pervasiveness of sex is advertisers' practice of presenting children in sexually provocative clothing and poses in order to sell products, a marketing method sometimes referred to as corporate pedophilia. This is done by even the most respectable companies. The coexistence of the social panic about pedophilia and society's apparent indifference uh, to children being presented in the media as sexually desirable stands, I think, as a striking testimony to the power of Freudian denial on a mass scale. Where both parties consent to a casual encounter and no third parties are affected, then, of course, making moral judgments is a mistake. But a friend or a family member uh, might assume the role not of moral judge but of moral advisor. The friend of a young woman, for instance, considering a sexual encounter, might question whether the purpose of the proposed liaison is, uh, what, sorry, whether the proposed liaison is really in her interests. Is consent freely given? Uh, is she feeling pressured? If she gets drunk, will she be in a position to consent? Is the sex engaged in for its own sake or is there some other objective being pursued? Um, although I present this scene as a sort of interrogation, in fact, young people engage in these sorts of conversations all the time, often assisted by uh, magazines and the advice that they give. Well, if the young woman can answer honestly that none of these factors presents an obstacle and all the conditions of fully informed consent apply, then her friend might pose one final question. Will you regret it afterwards? And in posing this question, the friend is calling into the conversation the young woman's moral self, her inner judge. Well, why might the young woman regret engaging in casual sex, even though she goes into the encounter fully informed and consenting? Well, some authors have discussed this question. Uh, John Hunter, the anesthetist, for example, um, defends sex with love. And he argues that impersonal sex always falls short of an ideal. Loving sex goes far beyond physical gratification. It includes, he writes, mutual trust, total mutual acceptance and an intimacy distinguished by the sharing of one's innermost thoughts as well as one's body. Sex in the context of love and intimacy, he says, becomes part of a rich relationship marked by security and reciprocity which nurtures the sense of value and specialness in the lovers that infuses their entire relationship and advances their health and their emotional well-being. Although this is a compelling case for the superior value of sex with love, it doesn't mean that impersonal sex is of no value. Hunter's argument is that casual sex doesn't live up to the ideal of sex with love but for our young woman, for instance, the choice is not between uh, casual sex and ideal sex, it's between casual sex and no sex.
And moreover, the ideal is open to challenge. Uh, in his book uh, titled Good Sex, Raymond Belliotti argues that people who pursue sex without love might be seeking only the inherent pleasure of sex and, a val- and value a life free of emotional entanglements. Impersonal sex may be more enjoyable, he says, because it's free of oppressive expectations and obligations. He goes on to write, non-lovers experience adventure and shared risk. They sense mutual appreciation for freedom and non-possessiveness. They entertain feelings of specialness as they exercise unique opportunities. And they perceive sex as an inherently valuable human enterprise that transcends instrumentalist concerns. This is the position taken to the extreme by authors such as uh, Catherine Mie in her memoir, it's called The Life of Catherine M., The Sexual Life of Catherine M. It's a powerful argument with widespread appeal. Yet there's something missing because we know that feelings of regret often follow casual sexual encounters, not to mention paid ones. It's implausible, I think, to propose that it simply falls short of the ideal of loving sex in the same way as it's implausible to argue that feelings of regret arise because a one-night stand doesn't fulfil hopes of adventure, liberation and an inherently valuable enterprise. So there's something more going on. If, after the event, our young woman's inner judge rules against her, the disturbance she feels will be for something she's lost, something she has sacrificed. The metaphysical intimacy that joining essences uh, she and her partner experience has no emotional context and might feel like a violation of her bodily integrity and a trivialisation of the act of sexual union. For both men and women, if emotional intimacy is absent, the metaphysical intimacy, which I suggest is always there, hidden or otherwise, feels hollow because its special character seems to require care and respect. Perhaps this is why so many people are left with a vague feeling that uh, each time after they have casual sex they give a bit of themselves away, that something sacred is profaned and they are diminished as a result. Casual sex truly is uh, meaningless sex. Well, in an era uh, when premarital sex and casual sex attracts no stigma and indeed abstinence itself has to be defended, this seems to be at the heart of the decision by some young, young women and even some young men in recent years to go against the trend of sexual licence and to save themselves for their future spouses. So I just want to consider for a few minutes this apparent return to chastity. Well, for teenage girls in the 1950s, uh, the price of breaching the chastity rule could be high, extreme even, especially if they became pregnant. But by the 1970s, virginity had become a sign of oppression, um, a denial of the right to free sexual expression. However, 30 years on, chastity is making a comeback. I read recently of a young woman who's now 20 who said that when her friends became sexually active at school at about the age of 15, she noticed that um, depression, confusion and rejection often went with engaging in uh, early sexual encounters. In a sex-saturated culture, her peers, she said, felt they had no choice. They were blind in a way, she was quoted as saying. 
doing what they thought they had to do with their boyfriends. They should have been told they didn't have to behave that way. But the only message they got from the adult world was, use a condom. So this young woman made a bold decision to remain chaste until she feels willing to give her entire self to another. She said that her friends saw her decisions a bit weird, but also fascinating. So perhaps the wheel has turned. Where once teenage sexual activity was a sign of rebellion, now the virgin is the dissenter and chastity signals independence of mind. I'm not, of course, talking about officially sanctioned abstinence campaigns or those uh, creepy ceremonies where daughters promise their fathers to remain virgins. Um, I'm talking about young women and men who make a considered choice. Once the timid and the compliant held back from engaging in early sex, now it's the confident and courageous who refrain. Which leads uh, me to ask, who is more free? Who is more free, the young woman who's saving herself or her friends who became sexually active at 15 because it was expected of them? So what happened to bring about this strange reversal? Well, the victories of the social movements of the 60s and 70s were, of course, necessary and inevitable. The sexual revolution blew away strictures that caused a great deal of misery, the shame of premarital sex, uh, imprisonment in unhappy marriages uh, and the neuroses that stood in the way of sexual pleasure. The demand was to replace a society of oppressive rules and conventions with a society of autonomous individuals committed to the welfare of all and discriminating against none. For the first time, uh, these revolutions had it we'd be free to control our own destinies. Yet today, despite these uh, extremely important <coughs> historical advances, we've never experienced more pressure to define ourselves in ways other people want us to. Now, as an illustration of this, for decades in the US, psychologists have been measuring a personality trait known as the locus of control, a measure of the extent to which we believe we control our own lives rather than being subject to outside forces. And the research shows um, there's, uh, people have gone back and, and uh, studied this, uh, in particular, uh, uh, psychologist named Jean Twenge, um, she went back and dug out the archives and looked at um, the measures of locus of control for college students in the US back in the 50s and 60s and compared them with the same measures, the same instruments are being used to measure locus of control today. And what she found was that young people in the West have become more inclined to believe that external forces control their lives. And remarkably, declining scores on locus of control tests are greater amongst young women, despite the opportunities for women delivered by feminism. Perhaps uh, we could expect no more in an era in which, for many, the desirable life is one uh, lived out of control, binge drinking, indiscriminate sex and capitulation to every desire um, thrust upon us by the market. So equality came to mean freeing girls to behave as badly as boys, and created a new gender, girls with balls, as one writer put it, where once we imagined perhaps something closer to boys with ovaries. 
And although the objectives were noble, of course, uh, the demand for individual rights in the 60s and 70s, I think, released a self-centredness that's grown into a full-blown narcissism in modern cultures like ours. For example, in the 1950s, only 12% of US teenagers agreed with the statement, I am an important person. In the late 1980s, 80% described themselves this way. So in our pursuit of tolerant pluralism, we created a society of radical individualism, a phenomenon dubbed boomeritis by author Ken Wilber. Appeals to the principles of equality and freedom uh, often allowed egocentric demands to flourish. Slogans such as, let it all hang out, uh, do your own thing, were soon interpreted to mean, no one can tell me what to do. Self-worth became self-worship. The marketing language used today mirrors this development precisely. Narcissistic interpretations of liberation are the bread and butter of modern advertising. Consider these taglines from some magazine ads that I've seen recently. Go on, you deserve it. Just for you. If it makes you happy, it's a bargain. And I don't care what it is, I want it. It's now apparent, I think, that the radical demands of the liberation movements dovetail perfectly with the logic of hyperconsumerism. The self-creating individual was the agent ideally suited to the needs of the market. And among the first to understand the opportunities this uh, presented were the tobacco companies, uh, which very quickly turned feminism into dollars by associating smoking with women's emancipation and empowerment. As early as 1968, Philip Morris launched Virginia Slims, a cigarette brand targeted specifically at women, famously deploying the slogan, you've come a long way, baby. The strat I'm sure the older members of the audience will remember that, as uh, I do. The strategy worked. More teenage girls took up smoking. Uh, by 1978, uh, a magazine ad uh, for Virginia Slims juxtaposed a photo of an elegant woman in an evening gown uh, with one of a housewife hanging out the washing. And the text of the magazine ad read, back, uh, back then, every man gave his wife at least one day a week out of the house. You've come a long way, baby. Virginia Slims, slimmer than the fat cigarettes men smoke. Sadly, the tumours women developed were no slimmer. And this uh, uh, capacity of uh, tobacco companies to uh, link their product with social trends it continues. I noticed only a couple of weeks ago one of the most absurd things I've ever seen, this ad which I tore out of The Nation, a magazine for pro progressive people, which is an advertisement for cigarettes made from organically grown tobacco. <laughs> Look at the colours. And it's actually called uh, Natural American Spirit. It's a spiritual cigarette. Um, and it's advertised here, it's on the back page as well, they give the details that it's grown uh, without fertilisers and pesticides and the farmers who grow the tobacco have to prove that for three years you know, those horrible substances came nowhere near their fields. So this is a, this is a cigarette specifically designed for people uh, who worry about their health. 
And, you know, it sounds silly, and it is, but, you know, these, the, the, the marketers are extremely savvy people and they know the psychology of some smokers at least. They want to give people a reason to keep smoking. And so if you smoke organic cigarettes, then the organic in people's minds somehow cancels, cancels out the cancer-causing toxins. It's very, very clever. Now, corporate corruption of the 60s ideals of youth rebellion and the counterculture is unmistakable, I think, if we compare the original Woodstock Festival in 1969 with Woodstock 99, an attempt to reprise the famous Love Fest. Woodstock 69 was imbued with a sense of harmony and tolerance uh, that was everywhere seen as, as one person wrote, a victory for peace and love. When the numbers of young people turned up uh, to, to Woodstock uh, 69, when they exceeded expectations, the organisers threw open the gates and made it a free festival. The only reporter to attend uh, the entire event, uh, a man named Barnard Collier of the New York Times, had to resist his editor's demands to uh, put a negative spin on the festival. He, they wanted, he wrote, um, a, uh, they wanted him to write about a social catastrophe in the making. But instead he wrote of, quote, the fascinating cooperation, caring and politeness among so many people and of an amazing and beautiful accident. Thirty years later, Woodstock 99 was an unapologetically corporate venture. It had uh, sponsors, vendor malls and ATMs. It was criticised for gouging patrons with, quote, grossly overpriced water, beer and food. In fact, ticket holders were frisked on the way in to make sure they weren't carrying any contraband bottles of water. The concert had an impregnable perimeter fence with 500 security guards uh, to make sure they kept uh, people out. No free concert then, to be sure. But the security inside the enclosure was inadequate and the concert was, concert was marred by arson, looting, uh, violence and several allegations of rape. In sharp contrast with the harmony, peace and love of Woodstock 69, Woodstock 99 was noted for what uh, one commentator observer called uh, a palpable mood of anger. Well, in the freedom paradox, I call for a reconsideration of the state of freedom in modern societies. Writing in 1944, the high priest of free market libertarianism, Friedrich von Hayek, observed that the success of the expansion of individualism and commerce had surpassed man's wildest dreams. He wrote, What in the future will probably appear the most significant far-reaching effect of this success is the new sense of power over our own fate, the belief in the unbounded possibilities of improving our own lot. Despite the advances in market freedoms and the victories of the liberation movements, we look around today for signs of true autonomy, of inner freedom. That is, in Hayek's words, inner freedom is the extent to which a person is guided in his actions by his own considered will, by his reason or lasting conviction, rather than by momentary impulse or circumstance. The opposite of inner freedom is not so much coercion by others, rather it's the influence of temporary emotions or of moral or intellectual weakness. If we succumb to these influences, 
then we become the slave to our passions. But isn't the absence of inner freedom the dominant characteristic of modern consumer society? Where the cultivation of momentary impulse, temporary emotions and moral or intellectual weakness has become really the essence of the system? Isn't the purpose of the marketing society to make us the slaves of our passions? In the era of hyperconsumerism, the urge to satisfy any desire has reached sublime levels. It's now possible to buy capsules filled with 24-carat gold leaf which, when swallowed, uh, make your excrement sparkle. <laughs> it's true. You can buy them on the internet. Created by uh, the New York designer Tobias Wong, the gold pills are promoted as a signifier of excess and a means of, quote, increasing your self-worth. <laughs> Although, presumably, for only as long as the digestion process takes. Now, the ultimate confirmation of the ancient associa association often noted by anthropologists between gold and excrement. At uh, $425 each, the pills bring to mind a piece of Latin American graffiti which goes, if shit turned to gold, the poor would be born without asses." <laughs> Apologies to the youngsters here. Don't, don't use that at home and don't, and don't write it on your desk at school, which is where I saw it. <laughs> I didn't write it. This is truly the freedom of the market. Uh, Rosa Luxemburg, to go from the, um, the ridiculous to the sublime, uh, Rosa Luxemburg, the German revolutionary, um, once wrote, freedom is always and exclusively freedom for the one who thinks differently. Freedom is always and exclusively freedom for the one who thinks differently. She was right. Thinking for ourselves is the ultimate form of liberty. Yet who truly thinks differently today? when our universities have become locked into the demands of the market, uh, corporations infiltrate the academy and governments drain funds from critical disciplines? Who thinks differently when the mass media saturate the culture with triviality and vast resources are devoted to capturing our attention with new television programs designed to amuse, titillate, disturb or revolt us, all with the sole purpose of exposing us to advertising. And when children's brains develop in a vat of commercial messages, who believes we're creating a generation of critical thinkers? Where is the space for different thinking when the end of politics has been announced, where a particular form of liberal capitalism has achieved hegemony, so much hegemony that there's no substantive difference between the main political parties because they've converged on a belief in unfettered markets, consumer choice and the primacy of economic growth. Well, the narcissistic and self-destructive elements of boomeritis converge in the figure of Paris Hilton. In September last year, Republican presidential contender John McCain ran a television ad subliminally associating Barack Obama with the emptiness of Hilton's celebrity. Uh, like Hilton, suggested the ad, Obama is the creation of pop culture. The Republican strategy failed because 
in conspicuous contrast uh, to Paris Hilton and indeed the previous Democrat president, Obama represents the antithesis of pop attitudes to sex. Barack and Michelle Obama um, often engage in uh, public kisses and embraces, spontaneous ones, which have turned them into the hot couple who are making sex in marriage look not only desirable but better than the alternative. In the mind frame of 60s rebellion, sizzling matrimonial love is an oxymoron. But the Obamas are making it cool to be monogamous. For young people who have chosen sexual autonomy, perhaps even abstinence in the case of the young woman I referred to, the Obamas seem to provide a model of how intimacy and commitment can be combined with an exhilarating sex life. Postmodern academics see the bad girl as the heroine who sticks two fingers up at the puritanical repression of healthy sexuality. But against Michelle Obama, I'd suggest, the bad girl looks more and more like the puppet of a hypersexualized society whose demands to conform are every bit as insistent as those of the 1950s conservatives. She is a victim of the teen culture. The bad girl is the victim of the teen culture, satirised in films like Mean, mean Girls and indeed in Chris Lilly's character, Jemay, in Summer Heights High. All Jemay wants is to be hot. Bad no longer signifies rebellion. It signifies compliance. Withholding the body instead of flaunting it, acknowledging one's sexuality but not necessarily sharing it with strangers, is the new transgression. Good is the new bad. The reappearance of modesty and constraint doesn't, however, represent a return to the conservative morality of the 50s with all of its oppressive baggage. The argument for sexual self-control is an argument for more freedom, not less. Freedom from the tyranny of expectations imposed on baby boomers' children by the commercial co-option of the aspirations of the sexual revolution and the women's movement. The task for today's teenagers, then, is to win back their freedom from the adults who run the advertising agencies and girls' magazines and the sex-positive media academics who insist that bad girls are powerful girls. The idea of empowerment through sexual licence has reached its pinnacle in the last few months, I think. Uh, in the case of Natalie Dillon, which is a pseudonym, incidentally, Natalie Dillon, a 22-year-old Californian who is auctioning her virginity to the highest bidder. She said, I understand some people may condemn me, but I think this is empowering. I'm using what I have to better myself. In a perfect convergence of the narcissistic interpretations of 60s liberation and pure market thinking, she declared, I don't have a moral dilemma with it. We live in a capitalist society. Why shouldn't I be allowed to capitalise on my virginity? Why not indeed? Every other, other body part has been turned into a commodity, although so far it's only the desperately poor people of the third world who have been forced to sell their kidneys. And, as if to underscore the perversion of the ideals of feminism, it turns out that Natalie holds a bachelor's degree in women's studies.
postmodern sexual radicals who urge teenage girls to seize power by being sexually provocative are the new oppressors because they insist that teenagers behave according to their own 1960s script. The same people defend the liberating possibilities of pornography, which is inherently liberating for women because they believe it breaks through the regulation of women's bodies to show, in the words of one, the disordered side of the female body, its orifices and fluids, which are both threatening and exciting. So any effort to regulate pornography are always the puritanical repression of healthy sexuality, no, no matter how far out and dark the particular expressions of pornography might be. On this view, criticism of any form of sexual behaviour is suspect because all sexuality is natural and because the suppression of one form of sexual expression can only be the thin end of the wedge. Well, this gives rise to some truly grotesque arguments. So, thus, one uh, defender of pornography could in all seriousness declare on national television that those who want to regulate advertising to control the premature sexualisation of girls are equivalent to the Taliban who want to cover girls in burqas and make them the property of men. The debate over the sexualisation of girls has outed these postmoderns. They've always argued that children are sexual creatures, as indeed they are, but not in an adult way. Um, but they always argue that children are sexual creatures and should be allowed to explore and express their sexuality without the guilt imposed on them by neurotic uh, adults or conservative clerics. Luckily, these people believe, children are much smarter than neurotic adults and slip easily into a savvy, ironic, critical mode whenever there's any danger of falling under the sway of advertisers or the media. And the politics of this are quite bizarre because there's emerged an unholy alliance or at least a concordance of interests between the radical postmodern academics and the most aggressive agents of consumer capitalism, that is, the marketing industry. Both argue that advertising has no untoward influence on consumers, including child consumers, but is merely informational and entertaining. So the postmodern radicals, who matured in an era of challenging the powerful and denouncing the oppressive structures that served them, have ended up as their most vigorous apologists. To sum up then, the sexual revolution allowed us to discard oppressive moral codes, but it failed to deliver on its promise of a world of uninhibited sexual pleasure in which we could find and express our true desires. Sexual freedom became burdened with expectations it could never meet. Pursuing sexual freedom as an antidote to boredom or as a means of finding personal fulfilment was always doomed to fail. For many, it became a means of avoiding emotional intimacy and repudiating the metaphysical meaning of sexual union. The ideology of sexual freedom didn't recognise that for all of its wonders and enormous <coughs> pleasures, sex also has a powerful dark side, uh, one that often gives rise to feelings of betrayal, regret and emptiness. I've argued that engaging in early and uninhibited sex was once a sign of rebellion against an oppressive orthodoxy. Now, in a sex-soaked society in which the imagery and practices of pornography are creeping uh, every day into the mainstream, a new orthodoxy has taken control 
imposing a set of expectations almost as oppressive as those it replaced. In this new environment, power is now to be exercised by resisting those pressures. Temperance, even abstinence, can be an expression of self-control, of inner freedom. Today, the historic mission is no longer to attack and tear down, but to rebuild a moral code. In affluent liberal societies like ours, the task is to understand that freedom cannot be found in a moral free-for-all, but only in the careful exercise of restraint. Thank you. Thank you very much, Clive. I'm sure you've sort of generated a lot of interest in the room, very attentive and, and large audience. Now, we've got the roving microphone person there and we'll see how many questions we can um, cram into the time we've got available. I found that um, very interesting as a mother of five children, um, three daughters. Um, can you make maybe some comments on the quite common complaint um, amongst our young women that the young boys in our societies are no longer really um, able or willing to commit um, and the relationship that it could be um, you know, the willingness to have sex of the, of the girls. Yeah, well, it's, uh, I mean, it's one of those uh, phenomena which I think is not uh, a media beat-up but is... Um, is, is present everywhere and um, I mean I don't have you know the complete answer to the question but I'd point to um, I'd point to uh, not only the influence of the uh, social revolutions in the 60s and 70s uh, which gave rise to uh, I think uh, a greater self-centeredness I, mean, I don't want to bag young people I mean I know I've got a couple of uh, young adults uh, children myself and they've got lots of wonderful friends who are very young thoughtful, considerate and, uh, and wonderful young people. But I think there are a tremendous lot of uh, pressures on, on young people to, uh, to, uh, to pursue uh, consumer lifestyles and the type of uh, uh, money-oriented and, and, and forms of short-term gratification. And uh, I think, as I've said, that this has transformed uh, notions of uh, long-term commitment and, and relationships. Now, of course, back in the 50s, that uh, demand to commit uh, forever um, was often um, a terrible burden because uh, it kept uh, many people in unhappy marriages. I remember when I was uh, a boy in the, I think, sort of early mid-60s, um, my parents had uh, a set of close friends, about ten couples, and, uh, and, and one of them uh, broke up. You know, they split and got divorced, and it was... A terrible scandal, and, and they're actually quite uh, free-thinking uh, people. But the shame associated with that was enormous, you know, and it would sort of be whispered, you know, oh, yeah, that's terrible. Don't talk about it. And of course, uh, that uh, sense of obligation to always stay in an un unhappy marriage um, was um, was very oppressive for many people. But equally, uh, nowadays, um, uh, um, the my wife is a relationships counsellor, so I hear a lot from her about the, the types of attitudes that people have when they come into uh, uh, 
try to patch up a broken relationship uh, or a, a relationship in trouble. And it is quite remarkable, the attitude that some people have about uh, a very sort of instrumentalist attitude to the marriage, that, you know, we'll stick to it as long as it's working, but if it doesn't work, well, we'll just go somewhere else. And, um, of course, somewhere else is, you know, often uh, intact generally, not as good. Uh, one divorce is, uh, or separation is more likely uh, to lead to others. So that's a generalised response to your question, but it's a very tricky conundrum. Thank you for the talk. Um, as when you were talking about, um, in your words, premature, premature sexual activity among 15-year-olds, in particular 15-year-old girls, and you talked about um, symptoms of that being depression and emotional confusion, I was wondering whether or not this desire or this common trend in engaging in premature sexual activity for 15-year-olds was in fact itself a symptom of something bigger in society and not just uh, the depression leading from from that but them being um, a whole and um, perhaps they, uh, they, they could all be symptoms of um, a feeling of general loneliness stemming from the social structures around 15 year olds. Um, and the other point I wanted to make was the fact that we didn't uh, think a lot about the biological side of things and the fact that 15-year-olds are actually fertile and able to conceive at that age. So could that also be playing a part in their desire to engage in sexual activity from that age? Yeah, good question. I, I, I don't have a very good answer to that. I mean... You know, being a teenager has always been a very sort of fraught and difficult uh, time of life, um, as we all know, um, for most at least. And and uh, in a way, um, some of the most powerful lessons of life we learn and then follow, we learn uh, in our teenage years. And one of the lessons that young people should learn, uh, uh, but perhaps don't or are confused about, is that sex is extremely powerful. It's not just uh, good fun it, it carries a, a, a tremendous amount of meaning and uh, expectation it's in the nature of it and uh, so um, uh, it, it's a bit of a cliche but it's very much true nevertheless that um, a level of emotional maturity is, is needed in order to uh, handle the, the tremendous power of uh, sexual engagement in whatever form it takes. So I, I then, that's why you know, one of the themes of my talk was that I think it's regrettable that there's such enormous pressure in our hypersexualized society on young people to find acceptance through engaging often in premature sexual activity, which can be very damaging, as this young woman mentioned, talking about her friends being feeling lonely and depressed and rejected. So it didn't help their self-esteem or give them a sense of social acceptance as they'd hoped, but it had the opposite effect. And I think adult society has really abandoned young people uh, and you know, my generation of baby boomers are responsible for that uh, because of that whole ideology of sexual freedom and free sexual expression which uh, forgot about uh, the, uh, the, the powerful and potentially dark side of sexual expression. So um, I, I guess that my message is to remind us that uh, 
you know, uh, sex and sexual uh, relations um, actually can be far more wonderful than they appear in the superficial way they're presented in the popular culture and the media, but also much more uh, dangerous. Uh, and I think uh, we all actually know this, which is why we're... Well, you know, we, uh, there's a tremendous fascination with the details of sexual crimes, you know. We're sort of appalled, but, uh, but it sort of reminds us, in a way, of just how dangerous these urges uh, can be if they're not uh, treated with due respect. Thanks very much for the talk. It's very provocative. Um, I wanted to ask a question um, about that notion of girls with balls that you touched on. Um, I have an 18-year-old son. Um, I guess what puzzles me is why on earth girls want to mimic the kind of binge drinking, completely out of it um, mode of, operand, of, of operating yeah. that a lot of kids seem to go through. And I'm wondering if you could comment on it, possibly in relation to the sort of LSD hallucinogenic era, you know, whether it's a facet of trying to somehow escape reality or what the payoff is, because to me you just feel absolutely wretched physically and probably embarrassed and there's a lot of other negatives and I, I don't get quite what the driving forces are for that kind of binge drinking yeah. that's happening at the moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it's an extremely interesting and important phenomenon and it's actually uh, much more of an issue of social debate in Britain um, the sort of ladette culture. I'll come back to ladettes in a minute. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I mean, a lot of people puzzle about this. I mean, what is it about going out and getting blotto and vomiting in the gutter and uh, and not being able to remember it the next day? And um, it, it, I think it's again, I'd explain it in terms of li life is about living it to the full of abandonment, of being totally unconstrained by rules, a, a sort of. Uh, moral free for all and uh, without concern for the consequences. And, you know, there's, there's, uh, some, some uh, uh, women, uh, uh, feminists, call themselves feminists, defend the right of young women to behave in this way, which I, I find really bizarre because it seems to me, I mean, when, if we go back to the, the goals of the second wave of feminism in the 60s and 70s, I mean, what was the objective? Was, was the objective to liberate women or to allow them to behave in the same way that men do. And, of course, equality in a whole range of fields was important and a, a sort of great victories, although I noticed in the workplace a lot of women who broke through the glass ceiling and got to that sort of bloke's world thought, this is crap. Uh, <laughs> why? Why do I want this? Enormous pressure, competitiveness, nastiness, you know, I want to, I want to see my family and children. So but coming back to this... Um, this uh, increasingly uh, drunken and bawdy and sometimes violent behaviour, uh, not to mention um, uh, young female hoons, um, which is a particular bugbear of mine, I must say. You know, I ask myself, well, you know, what was the point? Uh, what was the point? I mean, if young women are going to mimic young men, aren't men still setting the standard? I mean, I always imagined that. Um, a society uh, in which uh, feminism uh, had a big influence would actually raise the standard of men to those of women. But it seems that the opposite has happened. So I think if half of the population, half of the young population, I'm sort of generalising here, um, 
has adopted the lower behavioural and moral standards of the other half, then one can genuinely talk about moral decline. Um, so I think it's really strange to defend this sort of behaviour by saying, well, you know, women wanted uh, to win the ability to do what men do, and so to criticise them for that is oppressive. Well, you know, sorry, it just seems to me that that, that type of behaviour, which we increasingly frown on when footballers engage, on it, in, engage in it, is nevertheless being rationalised and normalised by certain people as being legitimate for young women to behave. I just find this a really strange uh, uh, form of behaviour. And the interesting thing about uh, ladettes to ladies, I haven't seen it, I must say, but my daughter has, uh, thinks it's fantastic and has told me all about it, and I'm going to watch it next Tuesday, um, is that on the one hand, the defenders of young women should be able to get drunk, vomit, urinate in a public place and so on. This is their right to do it. But, uh, the thing is about the ladettes is that they do it and apparently when they got on the plane going over to Britain, they got so drunk that they were, and, and, and they were so obnoxious they got arrested at Heathrow Airport. Um, I dare say they were provoked into doing it by the filmmakers, of course, because it makes for good film. Um, but the point about them is they don't want to be like that. That's why they're on the program. That they might defend and say, why shouldn't I go out and get drunk and do whatever? But actually, in their quiet moments, they say, well, I'm here because I actually don't want to be like that and I don't want to be seen like that. I want to learn modes of behaviour that uh, will make people respect me more. Well, I was uh, recently in um, that sort of uh, situation. I went, um, I've just got back from holidays with, or for a week with a friend, well, with um, an ex-boyfriend from about seven years ago. We just recently got in contact with each other again. And uh, I felt like, you know, it was supposed to be casual sex sort of thing, which was okay with me, but I was also, um, I felt like there was going, going to be perceived something wrong with me um, if I expected something special in it or some kind of um, meaningful meaningfulness, even if it was a little bit, um, <laughs> a little bit of that. And when it was time to say goodbye, it was so, with so much indifference from him and I got a bit upset about it and then all of a sudden I was yelled at <laughs> about wanting some meaningful sort of uh, goodbye or whatever. Um, so it, it seems to me at my age that um, a lot of men, if they're not getting what they want or you're not saying what they want to hear or you are doing something that they don't want you to do, then they make you feel like there's something wrong with you and that you're insulted and, you know, that kind of stuff. And I think that's why that's all happening because no woman wants to feel unattractive mm. or that there's something wrong with them. And I think there's a lot of men that are making, making young women feel like that in order to get, get that sort yeah. of casual sex without any meaning. Yeah. I don't feel like it's got a lot to do with the media yep. so much. Well, thank you very much for sharing, sharing that with us. Um, 
I mean, in a way, uh, what we're sort of confronting is a, a sort of perennial problem of how young men and women uh, negotiate sexual relations. Uh, and, in, and really, I mean, perhaps I'm old-fashioned, uh, but, um, but you know, I think that in our society, I wouldn't like to make a more generalised uh, statement about this for a long, long time, um, part of the role of women has been to, in a, in a sense, civilise men towards the emotional meaning of sexual encounters, uh, or train them and civilise them. And, uh, and so, um, um, you know, men, particularly young men, are often very emotionally obtuse. Uh, and so I'm hoping, I hope that the sorts of examples that I've talked about, this sort of beginning of a sort of backlash or a return to uh, sexual abstemiousness where... Um, Significant, small but significant numbers of young women are saying, well, no, I actually don't have to do that for the time being. I can actually say no um, and I'm willing to wait to find uh, a young man who um, has learned that uh, casual sexual encounters where the object, you know, and, and, and the women are treated as objects, they're purely instrumental, you know, for sexual satisfaction goodbye... Um, and uh, to to uh, to be able to find those sorts of relationships. So I'm hoping that this uh, return to sexual uh, decision making, really, an inner freedom on the part of young women, will proliferate in a way that allows more young women to say, "Well, no, I'm actually going to be like her," uh, because I I respect her courage in saying, "No, I, I can abstain until the right time comes along." I mean, it's extremely difficult because there are enormous pressures uh, on, on young people. But nevertheless, I think, you know, I hope we'll see a, a swing back from the sort of society and pressures we've had where um, you were a freak if by 16 or 17 you weren't engaging in sex at the drop of a hat. I mean, I don't want to overstate this. I mean, my daughter reminds me that, you know, well, my friends didn't just do that. Sure, they engaged in sex from, I don't know, age... 17 or something like that, but they weren't indiscriminate about it. But nevertheless, they did come under a lot of pressure in some situations to do things they didn't really want to do. Um, I'm enjoying your book and enjoying the talk. Thank you. Um, I think that, well, you know, I'm wondering about um, what you seem to be arguing for is more self-reflection and in that self-reflection for us to take more emotional responsibility. And overall, I'm thinking that how can we, men and women, as parents particularly, bring our children up to take emotional responsibility through what they see as living, but also for, and in that environment, for young men to also feel within themselves What's the question here? What do I want? What feels right for me? Rather than leaving it only to young women, but young men and women together, being able to continue thinking, what feels right for me emotionally? Mm. And perhaps from there, you might like to say something more about both us as parents and young men and women being able to think more reflectively, particularly in our busy lives. Indeed. Well, thank you for that. Well, I mean, it's, it's terribly hard being parents, isn't it? And, uh, I mean, I, I always think that, um, you know, it's, it's the 
it's, it's the way you talk to and deal with your kids from sort of day one, that uh, you know, by the time they're 15, uh, it's probably too late. Uh, and um, it's never too late, but it's a, it's a lot harder. Uh, I, mean, my, I mean, I think what we need to do is really to teach them to be uh, uh, conscious consumers or uh, cri- critical media consumers uh, because the messages they're bombarded with about, you know, sex being, uh, indiscriminate sex being normal, natural, I mean, I just find it absolutely astonishing that Paris Hilton, I'm, I'm not obsessed with Paris Hilton, but here you have someone... <laughs> who became famous because of a video of her engaging in uh, fellatio and she became a celebrity and, and millions of young women around the world model themselves on that. Now, uh, why? I mean, I, I'm unapologetic about being critical of that. I mean, I think Paris Hilton is an appalling role model uh, mm-hmm. for young people and, uh, and yet, you know, a, a corporation will bring, pay her a million dollars and bring her out here to promote a new brand of beer or something like that. So I think we, as citizens, should be constantly critical of that and in our own homes to point out what's going on um, with, uh, you know, just to discuss it, to talk about it, uh, not necessarily to denounce it, but to uh, allow our kids to take a critical view of it so that they can uh, begin to exercise inner freedom, that is to act according, as Friedrich von Hayek said, according to their own considered will or lasting conviction. And to overcome this view, counter this view, that, um, that, uh, that sex is... That there are moral rules governing sex, not just rules, but moral rules. And, of course, whenever anyone talks about this, they're, they're dismissed as a moralist, and this is a terrible insult in our society. You're moralising, which means you're imposing your moral values on other people. Well, you know, societies uh, uh, evolve through moral conversations, and I think that... We're just starting to see the signs of another moral conversation concerning sex and sexuality in reaction to the liberating moves of the 60s and 70s. Okay. Um, Well, I think this session has certainly struck a chord with many, many people. Um, So I really appreciate your generosity in sharing your ideas with us, Clive, and and thank you to all of you too for participation. And sorry there, there wasn't time for more. You have been listening to the 2009 Perth Writers' Festival podcast series. Brought to you by 720 ABC Perth. This recording was taken during the 2009 Perth Writers' Festival and has been made possible by the Perth International Arts Festival.